Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I was reminded of my desire to really like Charles Dickens. And I thought I would be an intellectual if I liked Charles Dickens, and I would read his books and seem smarter than I actually am if I were to do that. So I picked up a copy of A Tale of Two Cities, and I understood the first sentence of that book. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I thought I would dig in and really enjoy it after that first sentence. But after that, it became work. It became effort. It became hard and difficult. See, there was a part of me that wanted to be something that I wasn't. I wanted to be... Uh, smarter than I was, as it were, right? I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Sometimes uh, I'll walk around and we'll see um, kids uh, in their various states of dress, and they'll uh, have a Beatles t-shirt on or a Led Zeppelin t-shirt on, and I'm thinking, I bet they could not name a single Led Zeppelin song, right? We want to become fans of something we have no knowledge of, right? We do that for some reason. This morning, we're going to recognize that there is a tendency we have to want to be a part of something that we have no business being a part of. We show ourselves to not actually be as knowledgeable about that thing as we would think we could be. As we've been talking in John chapter 10 about the Good Shepherd, this truth kind of turns on us a little bit in John chapter 10. Later in verses 22 through the end of the chapter, we start to see the confirmation that those who aren't Jesus' sheep don't recognize his voice. It's like wanting to love Dickens but hating every word of it. It's like wanting to be a fan of the Beatles but not liking mop tops and guys who sing in harmony, right? This morning we're introduced to something that that shows us that the revealing nature of Jesus. So here's our big idea. Jesus is one with his Father and is to be absolutely believed or absolutely rejected. Jesus is one with his Father and is to be absolutely believed or absolutely rejected. There's no half-hearted fanship of Jesus. You're either all in or you're all out. And I, I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news for, for, you, for, you, for you creatures who are here this morning who might want to have one foot in Jesus and one foot in the world. We might take this as a solemn warning that there's no such thing. You're either both feet in the Jesus camp, or you're both feet outside the Jesus camp. I want to show you that from this passage this morning as we run into this passage in John chapter 10. And I'm going to start off in, in verses 22 through 30. We're going to see that Jesus' sheep know his voice. And then secondly, we're going to see um, kind of uh, the second follow-up to that in verses 31 through 39, that Jesus' works are cooperative with his Father. 
And then finally, uh, Jesus ministers fruitfully across the Jordan. And all of this will kind of come together as we walk through our passage this morning. So I'm going to invite you into 22 verses, verses 22 through 30 that Jesse just read. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So this question gets posed to Jesus. And notice kind of the setting of all this. We're in this a, a new feast. We've been talking about feasts for like the last five chapters. Specifically, the, the Feast of Tabernacles has been going on. And so Jesus and his disciples have been kind of working through this. And now we're at this new feast, the Feast of Dedication. Now, this feast actually wasn't mandated by Old Testament law. Uh, we know it today as Hanukkah. It is the celebration of, of the rededication of the temple. See, what had happened is this leader named Antiochus Epiphanes really didn't like the Jews in this area. And so he started in this kind of mass program of just uh, slaughtering so many individuals. And it kind of high-pointed uh, high at, the, at the idea that he went into the temple and he sacrificed a pig on the altar to his god, Zeus. In every Jew's mind, what this did is it defiled the temple. And so when the Maccabean revolt happens and uh, the Jews take over the city again, what they do is they go back and they do eight days of feasts and sacrifice to kind of rededicate the temple that was there in Jerusalem. See, what this holiday is for them is what 4th of July is for us. It is a declaration of throwing off the kind of burdens of an oppressor in the name of a political reality. And it's in that context then that Jesus is being asked, are you our Messiah? Are you going to be the one who's going to lead us? And we need to know that they thought of Messiahs as political leaders. And truth be told, the Messiah was supposed to be exactly that. We have statements in Isaiah 9 that the government would be upon his shoulders. There would be no, or no end to the increase of his government. So this moment here is significant. See, when they press him in verse 24, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly, they think they're pursuing a political savior. But notice Jesus' response. And he highlights the cause of, of their unbelief. He says in, in verse 25, I've told you. He be, uh, Jesus brings his response by highlighting what he had already said. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Right? So these works I've been doing, these signs that we've seen, we've seen six of them so far in the book of John. These signs testify that my Father endorses me. 
And he said it in John 5, 36, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me. See, God, the Father, was giving his stamp of approval upon the Son, Jesus Christ that he was actually kind of uh, condoning the actions and the, 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 the miracles and the teachings of Jesus through the miracles he was performing. See, what Jesus is highlighting here is he's saying, again, I've been telling you this all along. My works validate my witness. My words are right because my works show you they're right. right? There's no way that we can uh, kind of take on Jesus' works but deny his words. Those two things come together. And what he highlights next is that there's a reality underneath this in verse 26. He says, but you do not believe. Right? Despite all of these good works, despite all of these things that have happened, these men are not believing. And it's not just that they're not believing in Jesus, they're not believing in the Father who sent him. Jesus highlights this in John chapter 5. He's saying, the works I do show you that the Father's endorsing me. But notice the reason in verse 26. He says, but you do not believe. Why? Because you are not among my sheep. See, in Jesus' own understanding, there is a a limitation that's happening here, a pre-existing limitation. They can't hear the shepherd's voice because they aren't of the sheep. It's worth noting that uh, Jesus stated the same truth positively way back in verses 3 and 4, right? If we look at verses 3 and 4, Jesus tells us that his sheep hear his voice. And now he's stating the same truth negatively. He's saying, those who are not my sheep do not hear my voice. You do not hear because you are not of my sheep, See, the claims of Christ are nonsense to them. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says that the message of the cross is foolishness. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. So this morning, if we take up the message of the cross and we go into Wall Street and we say, hey, your money belongs to Jesus, your money, it's about the lordship of Jesus on the earth and those of faith spend their money in uh, consistently with their belief in Christ, they say that's nonsense, that's garbage. Conversely, if you go into Washington, D.C., and you say your politics, the way you do politics, are under the umbrella of a sovereign God, Jesus, they say that's garbage, that's foolishness. If you go into New York City and you say your culture is about the lordship of Jesus Christ, someday you will give an account for Jesus, to Jesus about what you've done. If you go to L.A. and you say your movies, those things are under the lordship of Jesus Christ and you will answer for what you do, they will say that's garbage, that's nonsense. See, it doesn't make any sense to them. It's, they're not his sheep and they don't see him as their shepherd. So Jesus is telling us in no uncertain terms that only a category of people who are known as sheep hear and respond to him. And we see this repeated later in verse 29. Uh, In verse 29, uh, Jesus says, uh, my father who has given them to me. That these sheep aren't just uh, kind of created by their own effort, that these sheep were granted to Jesus, gifted to Jesus by his father in eternity past. See, when we open up the scriptures, we find these words. We find the word foreknown. 
We find the word called. We find the word predestined. And these words have specific meanings that we can't just gloss over and act like they don't exist. What they show us is that they have a God of intention. That before the foundations of the earth, He saw fit to choose us. To lay the groundwork for us to come to a saving faith in Christ. I love Ephesians chapter 1, as Dan's going to pull it up. Now listen to this passage from Paul. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he what? He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. He's called us. He's chosen us. He's predestined us. Christian, if you are in Christ, you've placed genuine faith, that decision was ground aeons ago, before the foundation of the world, that it was actually put into the book of life, as as we see in the, the book of Revelation. But notice that something else is happening here. That this statement is meant by Jesus to be an indictment of these religious leaders. So it's not just that God didn't choose you. Hard luck. Notice what Jesus does later in our passage. If we look down at verse 38. He says, but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. Jesus gives them a command. He gives them a command to follow, to obey, to listen. He goes to those who cannot hear because they're not sheep. And he says, but listen and obey, respond. See, the truth is this morning that you're not a sheep until you are one, right? The thing that proves us to be God's sheep is when we make a decision and believe on Jesus Christ. And that's when we know we've been part of God's preordained, foreknown, called, elected people. See, both things are true this morning. God is sovereignly electing his people, and he's still putting out the choice for them to respond. There's sovereignty and responsibility. Our Lord Jesus doesn't just come before these people and say, I'm sorry, you're not of God's sheep. Be warm and well-fed. He invites them lovingly, gently. Come, believe. The truth of the matter is, in this mixed audience, It's very likely that not all were hardened, unbelieving people. Some would come to faith in Jesus through this very conversation. In fact, by the end of this chapter, we're going to see men and women coming to faith in Jesus Christ. See, what we see in in the response then is this true definition of what a sheep looks like. And this morning, we can kind of tune our eyes in. And if we have question about our standing with the Lord, notice verses 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they, are, they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. See, notice what he says about the sheep. The sheep hear Jesus's voice. 
The sheep hear Jesus' voice. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Look at all these action words floating around. They hear. They're known. They follow. Remember, Jesus just described in verses 1 through 18 uh, what it is to be a sheep of Jesus, to, to hear the voice of Jesus. He's saying and describing the good shepherd and also kind of describing what the sheep are that follow him. See, Christians this morning are marked by following Christ. They read about Jesus. They pray to Jesus. They tell others about Jesus. They serve others who believe in Jesus. They spend their money for Jesus' sake. They give their time and energy to Jesus' kingdom, and they love what Jesus loves, and they hate what Jesus hates. Their patterns and rhythms show us an orbit around a singular star that is Jesus Christ. If we claim to follow Jesus, our life should take on the shape of Jesus himself. See, if you're here this morning and you're a sheep of Jesus Christ, you want to know Christ. You, you feel the burden of knowing Christ. And when you don't act like Christ, you feel the conviction of not acting like Christ. It's not just that they hear Jesus' voice, though. Look, they are given eternal life in verses 28 through 30. See, Jesus tells us of this eternal life in verse 28 in these three different phases. He says that we are given present tense eternal life, that we will never perish, which is an aorist tense, which is kind of outside of time. And then finally, he will never snatch us away. No one will ever, that's future tense, no one can ever remove us from this. This eternal life is rooted in the Father and Son's collaboration, but it stretches across all eternity. If you are in Christ, there is nothing that will change that status for you for all eternity. There is nothing, neither uh, hell or any other created thing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ. And what verses 29 and 30 show us is that this eternal life is rooted in the Father and Son's collaboration. Look at what he says in verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. If we go back up to verse 28, no one will snatch them out of Jesus' hand. We have this dual protection for us. It's not just that, that Jesus is protecting us. It's that Jesus is protecting us and the Father is protecting us so that we are eternally secure. And notice what Jesus says in, in verse 29, that uh, who the Father is greater than all. There's no one more powerful than the Father, no one more powerful than the Son, so that if you are in Christ, you will always be in Christ. There's nothing that will strip you of that status before God's heavenly throne because it has been purchased by the most powerful God, most powerful being in the universe, Jesus Christ, and assured to us by the Father. And then if that weren't enough, verse 30 tells us that these two most powerful beings on the, in the universe are collaborating together as they have one mind and one intention. It's not as though the Spirit goes one way and the Father goes another way. They are together. They are one. This morning, Christian, you are secure. You are secure because the Father collaborates with the Son 
because they've worked together from eternity past till all into eternity future, and they will not ever abandon one another. Isn't that the truth this morning? You were called before the foundations of the world. You did nothing to earn your status before God. You can do nothing to lose it. But John wants to go on. In verses 31 through 39, Jesus is going to kind of uh, have this interaction with these Pharisees, with these religious leaders. And again, he's going to turn to his cooperative work with his father. Look at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and Scripture cannot be broken... Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? I am not doing the works of my Father, or if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. These guys pick up stones. That's always a bad sign in an audience, right? If you guys are bending down and making sure you're reaching for a water bottle or something, right? They start picking up stones. They're ready to put Jesus to death again. This isn't the first time. There's been other places in the book of John where we see uh, where Jesus' life is threatened because uh, of what's happened. It happened in 839, and in chapter 5, verse 18, they, they said that they were conspiring to kill Jesus. So this threat on Jesus' life is, is nothing new. But Jesus calmly asks a question in verse 32. He sees them picking up these stones, and he, he just throws out a, a, a question to cut to the heart of the matter. I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? It's as if to say, which really good thing that I did makes you want to kill me? Are you going to kill me because I healed a man born blind? Are you going to kill me because I healed a paralytic man? Are you going to kill me because I changed water into wine? Are you going to kill me because of the hundreds of people that I've healed? See, Jesus is forcing them to look beyond his words to his actions. Even if his words claim that he is one with God, which would be a natural offense to them, his actions are hard to argue with, aren't they? It's not for a a good work that we are going to stone you, verse 33, but for blasphemy. These these people want to butcher the goose that laid the golden egg. They're ready to put to death the one who's working out all of these miraculous things. And so Jesus, in verses 33 through 39, starts to combat this kind of sense of blasphemy that's happening. And first, uh, Jesus tells them that God has referred to others as gods before. And he, he quotes from Psalm 82. Verse 6, which refers to this recipients, these Israelites, as gods. Not that they're deity, but that they're powerful and significant. 
That's the point of verses 33 through 35 is to say, hey, this isn't without precedent. God has called other people gods before. And so he just gives them a little pause. And he follows up with some undeniable logic. Look at verse 36. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus is coming at them with this undeniable kind of logical situation, right? Verse 37 says that if if the works aren't the Father's works, then don't believe in him. But verse 38 says, if these works are just the works of a common man, uh, or verse 37, if they're just the works of a common man, don't believe in me. But if they're the works of the Son of God, then you have a responsibility to believe in me. In fact, in verse 33, these men have already described that these works are good. And so when Jesus says to believe the works, he's drawing attention to their own idiosyncrasies. It's interesting that Jesus here is, they're willing to accept his works, but not his words. They, they want the good things that he's performed, but not the words that he uses that, that claim himself to be God. And notice in the midst of this that Jesus speaks of himself as working with the Father. That's what he says in verse 38 you know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. There's this nerdy theological term called perichoresis. And it describes this very thing that Jesus is talking about. Perichoresis is the theological concept that tells us that each person of the Trinity is filling the others, that the Son cannot act independently of the Father or the Spirit. And if the Father loves in election, Jesus also loves in substitution, and the Spirit loves in conviction and sanctification. But all are said to love, so that the Father affirms and sends the loving of the Son and the Spirit, but each person maintains its distinction such that they are one and three at the same time. If that makes any sense. Augustine says it this way, each are in each and all in each, and each in all, and all are one. If that's not the most confusing, I'm sure it made more sense in Greek when he said it, right? He says, each are in each, and all in each, and each in all, and all are one. See, the the truth is this morning, what Jesus is describing for us is that he and the Father are one. They're of one mindset. They're of one intention. They have the same purpose, the same unity. They know each other's thoughts. They think each other's thoughts. They do each other's actions so that the Son is constantly acting out what the Father has designed. And the Spirit is said, we'll see in John 14 through 17, the Spirit is issued forth by the Father and the Son so that they're always collaborating, always working together, always doing the same thing, even with different tasks at hand. It's one of the best pictures of marriage for us this morning, that the Father and Son are equals with 
one another, but have various functions and responsibilities in their relationship. A father has, uh, a husband has a specific role and a specific way of going about things, and a wife has a specific role and a specific way of going about things, but they work together for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of raising kids, for the sake of having their household. They work as the father and son work together. See, remember, this indwelling and oneness of the Father and the Son was the basis of our eternal life in verses 28 through 30, but here it's the validity of Jesus' ministry. If the Father is working in collaboration with the Son, to deny the Son's words is true blasphemy. Okay, to illustrate this, I'm going to go back in my past, right? I remember being a kid, and you hang out in a group of people, and this happened on more than one occasion, where another guy stepped up to want to impress somebody, and he would say, I know karate. Okay, good. Truth be told, they had watched one movie that involved karate a little bit, and then they wanted to tell everybody that they knew karate. And so what you would do is you would say, show me some karate. And then they would look like an idiot for the next five minutes, right? See, that kid wanted to validate himself, but when it time, came time to show forth the works that he was actually what he said he was, he couldn't produce it. Jesus steps into the world and comes to an unbelieving, hard-hearted audience. And when it comes time to show forth the works to prove that he said or that he was what he said he was, he does exactly that. He shows that he has a unique connection to the Father. That he can do what he said he wanted to do. What's interesting is it closes with this dedication to arrest him. Verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. There's still the intention to put Jesus to death. Now this finds contrast in verses 40 through 42. Jesus ministers fruitfully across the Jordan. And what happens is if he's rejected in Jerusalem, what John records for us is his acceptance out in the wilderness, out in the countryside, right? So look at verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John, did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Notice the the importance of the location in verse 40. Jesus goes back to the place where John and Jesus had been baptizing in John chapter 1. You remember that when we were talking about it? John had been baptizing. He had this uh, great ministry there where people were coming from all over to be baptized by John. And Jesus kind of comes in and and the disciples come to John and they say, hey, Jesus is baptizing more than we're baptizing. And John's response is, he must increase, I must become less. You see, all the way back to John chapter 1, verse 7, uh, we were told that John would come and he would testify to the light so that others might believe in him. And that's exactly what's happening here. This testimony has ongoing ramifications. Look at verse 41. Many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And they believe him. They believe in Jesus. Notice that people here 
in verses 40 through 42, outside of Jerusalem in the country back roads of Israel are believing upon Jesus without signs and miracles. That's what John, or John is telling us in verse 41, that John the Baptist did no sign. But still in verse 42, many believed in him there. See, in Bethany, belief happens without miracles. On the basis of John the Baptist's testimony, men and women believe in Jesus, and we don't hear of any miraculous works that kind of push them into this belief. It's just by the word of John the Baptist's mouth, and it's on the word of Jesus's mouth. There's no signs performed that we're aware of. There's just this belief that happens. You might say, how? There's no miracles that are performed. There's no signs. There's no suspension of reality so that Jesus' uh, lordship is kind of accentuated. There's nothing that's happening there. It's just uh, these people are just believing in Jesus based upon words, uh, the spoken word of John the Baptist, the spoken word of Jesus. How does that happen? You and I might, I might pose a question to you this morning. Have you ever thought about your salvation as miraculous? That Jesus is working a miracle even here. See, the scriptures tell us that salvation belongs to the Lord. A couple of weeks we'll start in a series in, in Jonah chapter, or in Jonah. And in Jonah chapter 2, after Jonah has been thrown into the sea, after his unbelief, after his fleeing from the presence of the Lord, he's thrown into the sea. And as he's sinking, he later writes a poem about the sinking down into the water and his calling out to God to save him. And as he's sinking, as he's coming to the, what he describes as the roots of the mountains, the, the bottom of the sea, this fish comes and swallows him, right? Hopefully your salvation experience was more pleasant than Jonah's was, right? He says at the end of chapter 2, he makes this phrase, and he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's worth noting that if you were to kind of split the Bible right in half, that would probably be right at the center of the Scriptures. That God owns salvation, that it belongs to Him. And here we have a God who gives Jesus certain people and we'll see this kind of restated throughout the book of John, that, that God the Father gives Jesus uh, these men and women, that all those that the Father gives him will come to Jesus, like John 6 says, and that he'll never cast them out. That is, when, when God foreknew you, if you're in Christ, he foreknew you before the foundations of the world. It was a matter of fact that you would be purchased at Calvary. It was a matter of fact that you would come to a place of decision and believe in Christ. It was a matter of fact that you would someday be brought into the heavenly places in Christ. See, your salvation was purchased before anything started, before God said, let there be, you knew, or God knew that you would be in Christ because salvation belongs to the Lord. So here we have this kind of intricate play at work where Jesus is going out and proclaiming God's words and then being rejected to bring about God's purpose in salvation. See, we recognize that this work is miraculous because you and I should not come to know Jesus. The Bible tells us that uh, there's no one who, um, excuse me, that 
all have sinned and fall short of the righteousness of God. There's no one righteous, not even one. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, he says that spiritual truths cannot be apprehended by, by physical man. That the truths of the Spirit are not understood by us, that they're foreign to us. See, the unbelieving heart will never believe, even with these external confirmations. Right? Think about this, these miracles that they've seen. They, they knew the man born blind. They saw that he could see, and they still didn't respond. Christian, this morning, it doesn't matter what act of God you're waiting for. Excuse me, non-Christian this morning. It doesn't matter what act of God you're waiting for. There is no work that can confirm for you that you would finally believe. There's no outside logic. There's no argument that will finally win you over to belief in Jesus. Your heart is so sinfully wicked, so opposed to the purpose of God. We fall short of that standard. But here's the miracle of faith. That some do come to faith in Christ. Isn't that miraculous? If we know the wickedness of our own hearts, isn't it miraculous to say that any of us have come to have faith in Jesus? Paul says it in Ephesians 2, right? We've memorized this since we were in VBS as a kid. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And what? This not of yourselves, not of your own doing in the ESV. You didn't create your faith. God gave it to you as a gift. See, God has miraculously worked a salvation in his people that we didn't deserve, that we didn't earn. And now we're recipients of God's grace. If we are truly his sheep, it's not because of anything we did. See, there's one instrumental piece to faith this morning. And we might say, you know, um, uh, you know, statistics say that there's probably seven evangelistic interactions before someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ. I've heard that statistic. Or we might believe, oh, an outreach, a good outreach program has this and this and this so that other believers uh, or other unbelievers might come to know the Lord and, and come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we start to build these kind of equations to say, if you have a, a, a strong Bible church and you present truth consistently and you uh, show yourself loving and you do all of these other things, then on the other side of the equation, people will come to faith in Jesus. And the truth is that that's not really true. See, the one thing that the scripture tells us this morning that's necessary for people to come to faith is the very thing that we can't provide for them belief. It's belief. And if someone comes to belief in Jesus, they will be a sheep. They will inherit eternal life, as Jesus describes today. If they do not, then they will not inherit eternal life. I, I don't know how else to say it. See, there's no... Uh, external element that we can kind of supplement that would get us to this aspect of belief consistently. It's not by, by just believing parents. It's not by limiting worldly influence. It's not by all of these other things. See, what we're doing when we do that is we're just, we're, um, we're just creating kind of this sheep costume. We're putting wool on ourselves. You, know, you can look like a sheep and you can smell like a sheep, but if you're not called of Christ, you're not a sheep. Notice in our passage this morning, in all of John chapter 10, 
that the one thing that truly defines what a sheep is, is his relationship to the shepherd. The one thing that truly defines what a sheep is, what a Christian is, is their relationship to Christ. The truth this morning is there's no riding the fence in belief. You are either a believer in Jesus or you are not. It might be a hard truth for us this morning. You're either a believer in Jesus or you're not. We can't go through life having one foot in the Christian camp and one foot in the self camp. It's not going to work. Inevitably, if you are in Christ, Christ will go about the process of turning over the tables in your own heart to refine and destroy that selfishness that exists in you. He will go about through the power of His Spirit and His Word. He will go about kind of turning over the parts of you that aren't in submission to Him, and He will bring you into submission to Him. There's no divided self. See, I wonder this morning if we might be confused on this issue. Culturally speaking, it's very hard right now to assess whether someone is a sheep or not a sheep based upon their actions. We all kind of do good stuff. We, we come to church on Sundays. We wave at our neighbors as we're out driving out of our really nice neighborhoods and our nice cars. Maybe you don't have a nice car. Someday you too will arrive. Just kidding. That was a joke. But we do good things. We help our neighbors. We, we have compassion on those. We, we probably sponsor a child somewhere else in the world. We do that thing. We adopt pets, and we think that's like something really moral. This morning, none of those things show us to be sheep. The truth is that our belief in Jesus will show itself. Our belief in Jesus will show itself. And the more we try to kind of add on these good things to make ourselves look right, it's like the guy who wanted a fruit tree and went out and stapled apples onto his tree. Paul Tripp gives this analogy. Imagine you have a tree that's dead in your backyard and you buy a dozen apples, and you say, I'm going to make it an apple tree. And you just go out and staple apples onto your dead tree in your backyard. It's not Christian in any way. We can't just add the, the fruits, the works, and hope to make ourselves a better tree. It's not who we are. The truth is that genuine belief in Christ will show itself. Patterns of prayer will come out in our conversations, patterns of Bible study will be used to encourage those people in our, our small groups. We will be marked by genuine acts of kindness and selflessness to others, right? If God is a God who collaborates and works together. Christians will show themselves to be Christians by their collaboration, by their ability to be with one another, right? 
if God is a God who saves miraculously, Christians will be those people who speak of God's saving work. If God is a God who reveals himself, Christians will be those people who take on the revelation and receive God's goodness as we read his word. Right? Just come back to these verses that Jesus gives to us in verses 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice. We know the voice of our shepherd. We love the voice of our shepherd. We, we memorize the verse, voice of our shepherd, the words of our shepherd. I know them. We, we come before Jesus as one who is known, as those who pray to someone that, that, that knows us, that isn't foreign to us, but knows us. He goes on and he says, they know my voice, I know them, they follow me. We do the things that Jesus has done to some degree or another. We act with compassion. We love those who are unlovable. He goes on, I give them eternal life. We act like those who have been granted eternal life, like those who will live forever, right? This morning, it's call for us to recognize that if God's called us as his sheep, we should do sheeply things. I just made that word up, sheeply. But we should do things like sheep do. We should bear the marks of being with our good shepherd. We should show those things out. What's happening in this story is this account of, of these uh, religious authorities who are rejecting God's word because they're not really sheep. And in so doing, they're proving themselves to not be connected with the Father. I wonder this morning if we might self-inspect. We might say, there's a part of me that's not in line with my good shepherd. Now hear me this morning. Some of us here are, are so bruised and battered by our sins, by our temptations, that we have a, a looming question in the back of our minds about whether or not you are really in Christ. And I'm going to tell you from personal experience some of those who ask that question are in Christ and some are not. And if I were to cut it short for you as, as a mass audience this morning and say, no, no, if you're asking that question, you're good. It's okay. I wouldn't be doing you any justice. It's upon all of us to ask this question and say, uh, am I really in Christ? Am I truly in submission to, uh, to the Father and to the Son and to the Spirit? For some of us, though, it's also this, this pattern of we just beat ourselves up over our sinfulness. And we don't know how God could love a sinner like me. I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus deeply loves those who follow him. Even for the brief instance that we stopped following, Jesus brings forgiveness and grace to his people, doesn't he? It's the passage we opened with from Exodus 34, God describes himself as a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the God that we know. He's a God of grace and mercy, isn't he? 
This morning, he met you with fresh grace in Christ, if you're in Christ. So this morning, I want to pray that God gives us clarity in this regard, that he allows us a clear understanding of, of what he desires of us, and that we can go home with confidence saying, I know I'm of his sheep because I follow him. I know I'm of his sheep because he knows me. I know I'm of his sheep because he gives me eternal life. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that now. Pray that you would bring clarity in our hearts and minds. That you would rec- help us to recognize that there is no half-hearted seeking after you. We are either your sheep or we are not. So Lord, I pray now by your grace and your mercy that you would bring that confirmation to us. Romans says that your spirit testifies with our spirit that we are sons of God, that we should examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. So Lord, give us the discipline and strength, strength, excuse me, to be those who self-inspect. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.